Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Well, Carmen, we're back again, and we're going to um, finish talking with Eric DeWalt um, of Ridgewater about the Coldstream Restoration Project. In the last episode, we learned a little bit about the overall project and the work that Eric and, and his colleagues have been doing, and this time we're going to learn a little more about some of the extra benefits that we get from stream restoration. In talking about stream functions, one of the things we mentioned was streams also provide society benefits. Let's hear what Eric has to say about the benefits to the community from this project. Um, I think from the social benefits of the stream, it's important that people can access it. And so there's this parking lot where we just parked and walked over from that's really close to the stream. and. Um, you know, if they use the ribs that we left as little sidewalks, if you will, the rock areas to walk down to the creek, I think that would be the, the easiest access. So a lot of people don't want to walk through the, the dirty, muddy parts, but I think they'll use that, um, especially the kids. We have riffles and pools. The pools obviously are the deep areas, so they're going to be about two to three feet deep of water when there's water flowing. And the riffles will have just a couple of inches of water flowing over them in most base flow conditions. So um, the designers did a great job of laying out the riffle and pool alignment or a profile in, in, in the alignment. It, it wiggles back and forth. We use the word meander, but wiggles a good word back and forth across the valley. That lengthens the stream and slows the water down as it takes a longer flow path. And uh, it also creates some different habitat regimes where you get some scouring of the deeper part of the pools where that's where your fish are gonna live, the bigger fish. And then your smaller fish, your darters and whatnot, will live in the riffles underneath these slabby rocks that we've left with the faster flowing, higher, higher oxygenated water. Carmen, in addition to the societal benefits, or maybe as part of the societal benefits, Eric talks about the topography of a stream with riffles and pools and the wildlife that live in both of those. But he mentions something about base flow. Can you describe what that actually means, and especially in the context of what we've already said is Swiss cheese? Exactly. So base flow is the water that'll be in a stream when we don't have a storm. So if a rainfall comes and that water flows across the land and gets to the stream, we would actually call that storm flow, the water that's generated from a storm event. Part of the water from that storm event, though, will infiltrate into the ground. It'll soak into the ground. And as it slowly soaks into the ground, then it's going to make its way to the stream uh, as near surface groundwater. Over time, that water is going to keep making its way to there, and it's going to fill up the stream when there's not a storm occurring. And we call that base flow. One of the interesting things about Cane Run is, one, it's got a very... Um, urban watershed, meaning there's a lot of uh, per impervious surfaces or, that, or surfaces that are like concrete uh, roads that prevent water from soaking into the ground. So one, there's less water that soaks in, more that goes off when there's a storm event. So we have less that can contribute to the base flow. The other, as you mentioned, is the swallows. So what water might have been there as base flow is actually going on that nice little highway underground uh, to the Royal Springs. 
So in a previous episode, Carmen, you explored a stream um, at Raven Run and you searched for salamanders. And so, you know, as you know, out of curiosity, I guess, do we think or should we expect there to be salamanders that might, you know, inhabit the, the cane run after the restoration? Or um, do you have any thoughts on, on, you know, those two systems and how they might be similar or different? Eric mentioned another thing with the stream restoration project, not just the stream itself. So I fully expect there's probably going to be some life living in the cane run. We have actually um, gotten videos of fish 60 plus feet down below in the, when we've done groundwater wells around the cane run. So I fully expect there to be life within the stream. Not exactly the same as Raven Run, but I do expect there to be life. The wetland systems they are building are wonderful opportunities to add additional life. So some of the species like the salamander are going to spend part of their life in the water, another part of it out. So opportunities for macroinvertebrates, so those critters that live in the water, they'll spend part of their life in the water, part of it out. So by adding those wetland systems, not only are you adding stormwater benefits, but you're also adding diversity in habitat, which will, can allow uh, more species potentially to live in the area. I thought that was kind of an interesting piece of the project was um, were the off-channel wetlands and those um, they used liners for those in the construction so that will help kind of um, override the Swiss cheese effect I guess of the karst um, so that there will be more consistent um, habitat there over time so I think um, our visitors to the stream will certainly um, appreciate that as well. Uh, we talk about kids always finding water to splash around in and explore, and I think they will hopefully be pleasantly surprised at what's living in the wetlands. Their parents might not be as as excited about <laughs> how wet their feet are mm -hmm. and how smelly they might be, um, but um, otherwise I think it's going to be a really good thing. Um, Eric has some other thoughts about um, stream restoration in general and, and, and maybe just, you know, how we might need to change our perception of water um, overall. So let's listen to that. Water always wins. That's one thing I've learned. You know, we as uh, humans can design dams and streams and roads and culverts, but water will always win it. You know, the more you fence it in and push it closer in um, with development, the more likely you're going to have catastrophic failures. Uh, the more you try to dam it up, you know, the bigger the failure will be when it when the, the dam fails. And I think we've seen that with, you know, some of the dam failures here recently you know, between Puerto Rico and Houston and California. Um, and you know, that's what I went to school for was to engineer dams. And I love dams and love building dams, but uh, I think you just have to be very co cognizant of the fact that water will always win, and you have to stay on your guard. Um, the other thing about stream restoration, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all of our water quality problems. It's one tool in the toolbox, but if we don't take care of keeping the pollution out of the streams to begin with, um, we're still going to have polluted creeks. We need to get the sewers fixed and keep the sewage out of the creeks. We need to take our urban runoff and treat it before it gets to the creek. We need to get the trash out of the creek because, you know, the floatable trash on this project is amazing how much washes in. So I think that's uh, an opportunity for some, some smart young folks to, to figure out solutions like that in the future. 
as a stream restoration engineer and contractor, I love doing stream restoration, but that's a great question. Um, the benefits to society have to be weighed against the cost. And so the costs are obviously dollars to move dirt and put rock in, but the benefits aren't as tangible in dollars. The average person walking around out there can see that there's a lot of equipment that is involved in stream restoration. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of earth moving sometimes. And you, you can in pretty easily equate that to a pretty high dollar value. We already said that the city needed to spend a million dollars on some sort of restoration project. So can you talk a little bit about um, those, the cost benefit, I guess, ratio from your experience with stream restoration? Sure. It's easy, I think, when Eric was talking about the cost of equipment, the cost of labor, those sorts of things, to put a dollar value on it. So you can go out and there's a market for it. You can say, I want to have rent an excavator and an operator, it's going to cost me so much. What we really have a difficult time doing is putting dollar value on non-marketable items, so things that we don't trade uh, or buy at a store. Examples are um, flood control. So restoring a stream, giving it that floodplain access can help do flood control. So you have water that can actually go out to the floodplain and soak in. There's a value to that, you know, especially to the downstream residents. But we don't have a number that we can easily put to that. We have other values. So when they put the plants into the floodplain area, they start doing that. Those plants are going to provide habitat value. They can provide maybe habitat for pollinator species, which gets tied to our food crops and things like that. When the water can soak into the ground, we get a filtration benefit from it, so some sort of water quality treatment. So there's lots of what we call ecosystem services that such a project provides that we can't just put easily a dollar number on it because we don't trade it on the market. What's really interesting is there was a study done in the late 90s. So these are 90s dollar values, granted, you know, over 20 years ago that looked at all the ecosystem services provided in the world. And they estimated per one year that $33 trillion was the average value of ecosystem services provided. So there's a huge benefit that we get to society by having these services, but we're just not trading for them the same way we would if we went and bought a box of cereal or a bar of soap. And it's, it's I don't know, I, I think it's easy to, Sometimes if you're a numbers person that you say, well, this just doesn't work out and we can't afford to do that. In some cases, we can't afford to do the restoration, but it is hard to put a, a value on those ecosystem services, although you have evidence that it can be done um, in terms of a, a specific dollar value. But I think we also need to remember the value that it, it gives to our future generations. Um, and, and Eric, um, had a, a couple of thoughts also um, about about why he does what he does. We've spent several hundred years messing up streams and it's going to take several several hundred years to fix it. Try to keep it as simple as, you know, I grew up playing in creeks and I want the next generation of kids to be able to play in creeks that are clean and safe. And if I can help do that, then, you know, I've accomplished my purpose. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of KYH2O. Remember to check out our website for more information about stream restoration and check out our other KYH2O podcast. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu. 
forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.